How many of you are excited about what God's doing? I'm excited about what God's doing and excited for what he's uh, just uh, offering in us. I'm excited that we get to, that our clocks fall back as well. I don't like it when they spring forward. Does it fall back, right? Only for the people who show up on time. If you're normally 30 minutes late, then there's no time change. <laughs> uh, I, I, I always love it when they, uh, and, and my friend Jess Kulianas, who's Benny Hinn's daughter, always, always, she projects that, you know, it's Benny Hinn Sunday, fall back Sunday. I love when she posts that. It's just so hilarious when I, I get a little bit nervous of what will my kids post one day. I'm like, it does make you a bit nervous. Um, I want to pick up uh, tonight and, and where, where we left off uh, last night. How many of you were not able to make it last night? Here, okay, uh, I'm, that's, sadly, that looks like almost half of you, it's going to be, you're going to have to catch up with the class a little bit on this. Yesterday was sort of laying foundations of things about where we're going tonight, but I want to talk to you, I want to pick up and, and take a look at, um, we left off where we were talking about uh, uh, the high priest going into the tabernacle and, and doing the offering of atonement. And we have to realize that whenever we saw all of the sacrifices that were happening uh, throughout all the time, God makes it very clear that he did not want all these dead animals. His pursuit wasn't blood. His pursuit wasn't death of animals. His pursuit was us. All of that was him pursuing us. He wanted his presence he, it, it, the, the tabernacle was made of, of what? What was the exterior of the tabernacle made of? Skin, skins of animals. God covered Adam and Eve in skin. You know, he, gave, he killed an animal to cover, their, to cover their sin, to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame because they stepped in, out from under the pursuit of his presence and pursued logic and reason, pursued that place of knowledge of good and evil versus that pursuit of relationship. And so all of the, all of the, what we see happening with the law, all of that is a pursuit. All of that is there to pursue those things on our own. The law was, a, was something that was implemented because we decided we wanted to go our own route rather than go the relationship route. And so the law had to be put in place in order for us to get there on our own. When, when Eve made the choice to take the fruit and then gave it to Adam and they partook of the fruit, it was a pursuit of getting there on our own path and not the path of relationship. And so it's important to realize that, that that's what was taking place. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is the law. And it produces the law because it shows us what's good and what's not good. The tree of life is all about relationship. And that place of relationship. Now, again, we saw all these sacrifices that were happening, all these things that were, that were being done. And again, that was not God wanting all that death. Not, he wasn't wanting all the blood, all the destruction. He was pursuing us. That had to happen so his presence could abide and be among sinful people. And so it was, it was his pursuit of you and I. It was his pursuing you and his pursuing me. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke 3. And we're going to look at John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is the, if you will, the righteous, he's a picture of the righteous Adam. He's a picture of the righteous Adam. Adam and Eve were born into this luscious, beautiful garden, this place of provision, again, a place of relationship with the Father. But, but when, when they decided to go their own way and not follow God's way, not to follow what God had, they ended up being in this place of barrenness. They had to leave that lush provision, and they had to go in a place where there was not provision, where there was lack, and they had to toil, they had to work, they had to strive. That's what the law does, is it puts us in a place of striving rather than a place of being, of doing rather than being. And so when we see John show up, and the description of John is he's covered with what? What is he wearing? Animal skins. This is what Adam and Eve were covered with to cover their nakedness, to cover their lack, to cover their lack of, again, the relationship, lack of provision. And, they're eat, and he's eating what? 
locusts and honey. Where does he live? In a desolate place. So this is a picture of what redeemed Adam looks like. This is what Adam's life would have looked like out from that place of relationship, but in a place of righteousness, because John was righteous, but he was not in, he wasn't the picture of grace. He was a, he was a different picture. Now, Jesus referred to him as the greatest of all the prophets. And there's a reason for that. We'll take a look at that here. But take a look at verse 4 of Luke chapter 3. And this is looking at the depiction of John. It says this. Isaiah had spoken of John when he said he is the voice shouting in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. The valleys will be filled and the mountains and hills made level. The curves will be straightened and the rough places made smooth. All the things that are difficult, all the things that are out of place will be straightened out and will be corrected. You know, curves will be made straight, all this stuff. This is a, a, a very positive message, a very good message. Rough places made smooth and then all the people will see the salvation sent from God. And, and then in verse 7 it says, when the crowds came to John in the baptism, he said, you brood of snakes. Now, isn't it interesting? Isaiah's dis- description of him is one of all the crooked places made straight, all the hills and mountains made level, all, the, all these positive things. And John's message is, you brood of snakes. What if I stood out in the town square and just started preaching that? How many people would stop and hear it? You know, I was, I was on the campus of uh, University of Illinois in Champaign, and, and there was a guy that was across from this camp that had sort of a campus mall. And he's at this campus mall, and he's, these girls that, that have come walking by, and they're, they're wearing a little bit tighter clothes and a little bit lower cut clothes. And he's like screaming out, you Jezebels, come and repent. Come and bow down. And, and I'm sitting there going, that's not good news. You know, this is supposed to be good news. Your approach is totally different, you know. And then probably, you know, yes, do I want them to dress better? Yes, I do. You know, but, but his approach is completely different. And John is coming along. It sounds like such a positive message. And yet, again, remember, he's the picture of the righteous Adam. He's a picture of sort of this, you know, righteous Adam. But he says, you brood of snakes. He said, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? And I mean, it, this, is, this is, again, this is not like a super positive message. I guarantee you nobody's pulling out their cell phones and recording, you know, the audio of this. And he goes, now look at the message of what he says. Verse 8, prove by the way that you live. Now, proving the way, by the way that you live, what is that? That's a works-based, that's a law-based you know, it's not from the place of relationship. It's from the place of not having relationship. You have to prove that we wait. He says, prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. And it goes on. And what we see happening in this message is it's revealing something. He says, don't just say to each other that we are safe. We are the descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. <laughs> I, I, this, this message, is, as it goes on, it's pretty incredible. And I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty non, you know, this, I mean, this would not fly in a secret church at all. You know what I mean? I mean, they're not sitting there going, yeah, let's preach John's message in three, you know, in Luke three of this at, at all. And he says, he says, that means nothing for you. God can create children from Abraham of, from these very stones. And he goes, basically, he's going, you're as worthless as a box of rocks. I mean, this is not a positive message. This isn't a feel-good message. (laughs) And he goes, even now the axe of God's judgment is poised. And he's ready to sever the roots from the tree. I mean, this is like a horror movie right now, you know, of what, what he's saying. He says, yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. How do the crowds respond? What should we do? This is their response. What are we supposed to do? Now, everything that John is addressing is based on your works, based on what you do. How do you prove it? How do you look at? How do you? How, how does this? Demo, how is it demonstrated? And so they're stopping and saying, "Then what must we do?" You know, 
And John replied, if, uh, he replied to them, he goes, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. What is he responding with? Works. This is based on your action. This is based on your works. Everything in that message is based. And why is that? Because that's what the law produces. When you're in pursuit of the law and you're in pursuit, if everything that you're pursuing is doing what is right and doing you know, what is just, you will go down the route of the law. You will go down the route of legalism. That's what you'll do because you're gonna, your objective is going to be, you know, let me tick the boxes of what is, is, what, is, what, is, what is right and what is wrong and how I prove it. And how I prove it. Now, then you know, later the scripture comes along and says your righteousness is as filthy rags. So, I mean, your righteousness doesn't even work. Even if you do all the ticking of all the boxes, it doesn't even work. John is called the greatest of all the prophets because, number one, because he is there in the physical presence of the Messiah. He is living at the time of where the Messiah is. He is that's, a, that's the reason why that I believe Jesus refers to him as being the greatest of all the prophets. And also because he is the end of the Old Testament regime of prophets. His message is being, the message of the Old Testament prophets is coming to an end. It doesn't mean that we throw out the message of, of the Old Testament. No, that's not it at all. But it's communicating to us. All of the Old Testament is to prove to all of us that we can't get there based on our own righteousness. Our rightness is not right enough. And we cannot be right enough. We cannot get there. We cannot do it. We cannot be there on our own. You know, and that's, that's, that's what the entirety of the Old Testament is really proving to us that we cannot do that. And even in our lack and our inability, God is still in hot pursuit of us. Even in our weakest place, in our, in our, our, our furthest place from him, he's still in hot pursuit of you. It doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter where you've been. God is pursuing you. He's pursuing you. And so we see this as the end of this Old Testament regime and trying to be perfected by the law. And this is bringing ends to the works-based righteousness. That we are dubbed righteous based on our works. And so him shouting repent is bringing an end to that. The message, the message it, you don't see in other uh, other New Testament messages at, the, at this time, you know, them shouting, repent, 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 turn. But instead, there's a new and living way that comes. There's a new, a new path. It doesn't mean that we don't need repentance. Dear God knows we do. You know, we need to see repentance happen. Repentance means just to turn around. You know, it's a, it's a turning around from the old way and into the new way. And they, but we see John wandering. John wasn't the demonstration of relationship. John was the demonstration of righteousness based on separation. He was demonstrating righteousness based on separation. Why? He's wandering around the wilderness. He's withdrawn from society. He's not plugged into the community. He is withdrawn from the community. And John, one of the things that you see is you do not see John the Baptist and Jesus hanging out. Take a look at it. Go through scripture. Take a look. Now, I'm sure there were family reunions where they were hanging together and they were doing stuff together. But you don't see them anywhere where they're hanging out together. And again, it's because John is the end of something and Christ is the beginning of something new. A new and living way. And so, uh, at the time of John's baptism is the only time that we really see John and Jesus hanging out. And John the Baptist declares his unworthiness when he stops and he says, he goes, I'm unworthy to even untie your sandals. I'm not even worthy to, to, to un, un, unloose the, the, you know, the straps on your sandals. I'm not, I'm not even worthy to do that. And he said, he's basically declaring that. And I love Jesus' response because Jesus is basically saying, look, this isn't about your worthiness. This is about the fulfillment of Scripture. This is a fulfillment of scripture. This isn't about whether you're worthy or not. That's why I'm here, to make you worthy. I'm here to bring worthiness, something that you can't attain on your own. Now, John's big message, John's big message, the entirety of what we see John's ministry was all pointing to one moment, I believe. It was all pointing to one point, one time, one place 
where that John stops and he turns and he sees Jesus coming and he says these three words, starting off with, behold the lamb. That was the message John was born to deliver. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now what's so powerful about those words is that word behold, our translation of that is not strong enough. We, in, in the newer translations it just says look or turn and see. That's not strong enough. Behold is bigger than that. Behold is a revelatory word I believe that means see and take in. It's not just look, but it's see and receive. Behold, take in the vastness. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins. Behold the one who is coming to eliminate the, 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 the thing that has held you back, that has blocked you, that has kept you at bay. Behold the one who just given you entrance to come in, to be accepted, to be embraced. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I mean, this was a revelation that was being communicated by John. It was a powerful message. And then all of a sudden, we see Jesus being baptized. And at, at his baptism, you know, we see the Trinity coming together. We see the Father. We see Jesus there as the Son and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. I mean, can you imagine that moment? And then all of a sudden, Jesus, you know, uh, the Father speaks and says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. I'm well pleased with him. This is my beloved son. Listen to what he has to say. Now, all of us want to get a prophetic word from the Lord, but let's just agree that is the top of the top of prophetic moments. You know what I mean? He's at the height of hearing the top where the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It's such a powerful utterance, such a powerful word to be given. And then immediately, Jesus is led into the wilderness to go through a place of temptation. He's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. And doesn't that just make the Holy Spirit sound like a big meanie? You know, the Holy Spirit leading us into a place of temptation. I mean, isn't Jesus, isn't the Lord's prayer lead us not into temptation? But he's going in. Now, this is what we have to realize. This place, whenever there, have you ever noticed you get a really cool prophetic word? And what happens in the next day or two? You're laughing because you know what? All hell breaks loose. Opposition comes. The enemy comes. Why? He's trying to pull, steal, rob that word. He's trying to take it away. He's coming to fight it. You've heard it. It's brought a breakthrough. Something has happened. Something has transitioned. And he's coming in to steal and to rob and to take away from you. That's immediately what he's coming in to do. He's coming in to, you know, uh, to, to strip you, you know, of, this, of this moment, strip you of this, this situation. Uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's so incredible, you know, when that happens. And, and all of a sudden, uh, uh, you know, when I, in January when I was uh, just in, in Afghanistan and, and, and Bamiyan and, and I, was, I was there and, and, and it was, we had some incredible moments. We had, go ahead and throw up a couple of those pictures. There's one of them. You know, whenever you go to a place like this, you got you to gotta go stealthy. You know, don't go undercover. Don't be too overt. You know, don't, don't show too much. You know, uh, you, you, because you got to get it so that we've got a picture of just lay low, man. You know what I mean? Don't just put it out there, but lay low, you know. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm in Bamiyan doing my best to lay low, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, of course, if you don't know, this is like, I mean, this is like, you know, they'll kill you one-on-one on this one, you know. Uh, because this is, Jesus, of course, was not God, you know, to them. He wasn't, uh, he was, they refer to him as the Jewish Messiah, but they don't think he was anything higher than a prophet, and that Muhammad is a greater prophet than he is. So when you say he's God, I mean, it's, it's really confrontational language. But we were there, I looked at the guys who were, who were with me, and I said, I said, watch this, I'm going to show you something. And I'd, I'd done it before in Kandahar and Kabul, and, but I just said, I just standing out on this, this, this is in the marketplace there, I just standing out and I just said, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. No louder than that, just like that. And people stop and they start turning, and they're like, what are you doing? What's happening? I was just walking by and I felt something. 
I felt something happen. I felt something shift. And I, the only way I know how to describe it is I told the guys who were with me, I said, the atmosphere here is thirsty to hear the name. There's just the atmosphere itself is thirsty to hear the name of Jesus. It's just thirsty for the name of Jesus. It's crying out for it. And people just, something shifts within that place. And people are saying, what are you doing? What? I said, well, we're actually, you know, going to pray for people and see people healed. Do you have any physical things? And, you know, this is a part of the country where the medical care is so bad. There was hardly, I mean, it, everybody has something wrong. You know, I mean, it's so easy to pray for people because everybody had some sort of issue. And so the few guys that I have there with me were, st- were training, and I'm saying, all right, put your hand here. We start praying. We had this one kid who ha- had broken his leg. He was about 17 years old. He had broken his leg like four days before, and uh, he was there. And, I mean, his, this, the best repair they had for it was a splint. Didn't even have a cast for him. So he's got these two sticks on either side of his legs with rags wrapped around it. His leg is broken. I mean, you could see the bone. You know, like, it was, it was terrible. It was terrible. I was like, I don't know how. He had these homemade crutches that were just, you know, very primitive. And, and, um, and so one of the guys that, um, that was there, he had his hand on it and it started praying. And you could hear the bone, like, pop back in place. It just, like, snapped. And it pops back, and all of a sudden, the, the kid's like, I, something happened. And, I'm, and I look at the guy who's praying, and I thought he, pu- he was, he'd only, this guy had only been a Christian for a couple of weeks. But I thought he pushed the bone, and I was like, don't push it. And he goes, I didn't push it. It just popped back into place. And, and I was like, are you sure you didn't push it? No pushing here on my, you know, on my watch. You know? And he's like, no, I didn't push it. I promise I didn't push it. And he gets up, and the kid takes the rags off, and he, takes a, and he starts walking around, and is completely healed. It was it was incredible and then the guys amen the guys started getting nervous because there was this guy this one shop owner and they're like that shop owner actually persecutes uh christians and 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 uh it turns out he had been one of the relatives of one of the guys and and he was like he he persecutes christian and he came out of his shop and he's got a stick in his hand and he looks really angry and they're like we got to get out of here this guy now by that time it was i didn't want to leave because we had about 50 people surrounding us and i'm like man i'm ready to open air preach i mean this is you know all of my my blood is going yes you know i've got we've got an exciting time here and they're like no man we got to go you talked about doing drive-bys we got to do drive-by with that's when you're praying outside of a car, when you're in a car and you're praying for people. As and so go show that picture, actually. This is, this is a drive-by. So uh, this is one of the guys uh, there. This guy, had, at this time, had only been a Christian for, like I said, a couple of weeks. But he's praying for this guy's jaw. The other guy beside him had, a, had some problems with his teeth. He had prayed for him. And the picture there with the kid leaning in, that was the kid whose leg got healed. And so he was just like blown away and, and intrigued uh, by what was happening. But this is, they were like, let's move to the car in case, you know, we get in a dangerous thing to where we can speed away and we can escape. And so I was like, okay. And so we, we were just doing some ministry from the car at that time. But it was like so, you know, just seeing things just happen so quickly. And then towards the end of the trip, as we went to leave, I get arrested you know, and I'm like leaving and they're like, you know, they had, they had pictures of stuff of me out, you know, and the, the, the guys that were hosting me were telling me they actually had videos of, of different meetings that we had, had done, the, the secret police and, and, and it was like, oh man, it was, it was like incredibly stressful, you know, and you're in this moment where you're like, oh no, you know, and part of it, I'm not worried about myself, I'm sitting there concerned about these, all these young leaders, you know, that have been with me. Because everybody who had been seen with me, I'm like, they're all identified, you know. They, they could possibly all go, go back and kill them all. I mean, it was just like this, this weight was really heavy. And I remember just being in there. They put me in this, uh, this metal box, this container uh, that was freezing cold. We got a picture of that, actually. Uh, I took as we went to leave, that was like, it was freezing cold. That's snow on the ground. It's freezing cold, about 17 degrees. And, and you know, I'm in this uh, metal container, which is just, and of course, there's no heat. There's no lights. It's pitch black. It's, it's complete miser- misery, you know. And, and there was this sense, I didn't have a coat. I only had a hoodie on. And there was this, I, I was telling the guys that we met with the leaders this morning, I, I said it was so incredible because, 
in that time, I'd heard many of the Iranians talk about how close God's presence is in that time. And man, it is so true. There was just a sense of the Lord. I just felt like I could reach out and touch. I couldn't see anything because it was pitch black in this box. And it was freezing cold. I got to where I couldn't feel my legs, couldn't feel my backside, couldn't feel my hands. Everything was just going numb and hypothermia setting in. And I mean, I was having to hit my head on the back of the wall of that container just to stay awake because I was like, if I go to sleep, I'll, I'll be dead, you know. And, they, and then they would take me out of that and put me in this other shipping container where it was like 85 degrees and they would move you back and forth, back and forth. And that just wears on your body and on your mind, you know, when that's happening in that whole time. But man, I tell you what, it's so true that in those moments, God just gives you this peace he gives you a sense of his presence. And, you know, that went on for like, I was held for, at that point, for about 12 hours. I was held much longer than that. But they finally uh, let me have, sort of have a break in, in that. But it was, uh, it was really intense. And I was sitting there going, you know, Lord, I don't think I'm going to make it out of this thing alive. You know, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, what's going to happen. And so all of a sudden, now what's, what's incredible, it, it, it's crazy because the words that were coming to me, I was telling this uh, with the leadership, the words that were coming to me before the trip weren't words of, you're going to think I'm crazy when you hear this. They weren't like words of, you're going to go there, there's going to be an amazing victory, there's going to be this, like I had nine prophetic words that if you go there, you will die before going. Some of those were, were, you know, kids of the people that were hosting me, having dreams of the Taliban coming in and slitting my throat in the middle of the night and killing me in the middle of the night. My staff is sitting there looking at me, begging me. They're going, we got a bad feeling about this. We think this is not, you know, going to be good. We just have this sinking feeling that some bad, my pastor's wife had a dream that I was brought back in a casket. All of these things. Now, what do you hear when you hear that? confirmation <laughs> I'm sitting there going little Lucy you're scared you're scared you're trying to intimidate because you know this is going to be powerful you know this is going to be powerful and you're trying to project all your fear onto me to keep me away from what God is about to do now I know that sounds crazy but it's true remember Paul gets a word a prophetic word. If you go to Jerusalem, you will be arrested and ultimately killed, and he goes. Why? Because the word didn't say don't go. The word said you're going to be killed. This terrible stuff's going to happen. You see, we move immediately to this place of self-preservation rather than spending. You know, the, most, the safest thing you can do is giving your life for the sake of the gospel. That's the safest thing you can do. It's a guaranteed thing that you're going to be right in the center of all the good stuff God wants you to be in. And so I, I was sitting there going, I was like, man, all the, and I, finally I looked at my staff and I said, let me explain something to you. I am getting on that plane and I am going, and I'll make you this deal and this deal unless the flight cancels and there's no way for me to get there. If that happens, I'll see that as a sign and I'll stay. Otherwise, I'm on that plane and I'm going. And so sure enough, I was like, hey, the flight was on time. The flight was, I'm, 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 I'm out of here. I'm doing it. And again, that, that sounds crazy, but you got to realize, even at this point, you know, in, in what we're doing with, uh, with, with where we're at, we've got to be willing to spend all that we have for the sake of the kingdom and not be willing to try to hold back and try to, and again, you get these, I had, I'm working off the original prophetic word, you know, where that John Wimber gave Christy Wilson, the only like legitimate pastor that was ever, ever able to build a church in Afghanistan, uh, a missionary from Iran that's an American that went to, to Afghanistan to plant a church. John Wimber told him there would be a massive revival that would come to Afghanistan and a huge amount of Afghanistan was going to come to Jesus. It would be an incredible revival in Afghanistan and it would all come through power evangelism. Well, that's the word I'm working with. Not the ones that you're going to die. You know what I mean? And so Jesus is stopping here. Jesus is at this point where he gets this, the most powerful of all prophetic words. You know, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now look, 
Then, then he's led in verse 1 of, of Luke chapter 4. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. I love that. Full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of the Holy Spirit. Returned from the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. That had to be t- a tough 40 days. He's in there for 40 days. And in that time, it says, Jesus ate nothing. That entire, now that part just makes me sad. You know what I mean? 40 days without anything. Now, but I want to take a look because something is happening in this place of the wilderness. And it says, then the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scripture says, People don't live by bread alone. Now, could Jesus turn the stone to bread? Of course. But to do that, he would be surrendering to the word of the enemy rather than being the word of God. And so in this this state, in this situation in this wilderness, Jesus is redeeming the garden. This is Jesus. Why? Because who is Jesus? He is the second Adam. And he's back in, this is really being back in the garden, if you will. But now there's no lush trees. There's no beautiful, you know, foliage. There's no, there's not, there's not all this, you know, tons of fruit and vegetables and all this lush provision. But this is how he turns things around. So here, that's the second Adam. He's back in the wilderness, which this is a redeeming, again, of the garden. And as Satan is challenging his identity, saying, if you are prove it if you are the son of God then you got to prove it isn't that what all of the opposition that comes to the prophetic stuff that we get is is Satan going prove it you know prove it you you say you were saved but you did this you did this Satan's always trying to get us to slip into and in that place of trying to prove ourselves to him we're actually yielding to his will and so we can't do that And so he says, if you are the son of God. But what Jesus is redoing is he is reclaiming dominion that was given away. Remember what I said last night? At that point when Satan comes in and he says to them, did God say you can't eat of any of the fruit, any of the fruit of the the tree of knowledge of good and evil or of in the garden? And, And Eve says, yeah, we can eat of all of it. There's just only one tree we can't eat of. All of a sudden, Satan is coming in and Jesus is in this place where At that point where they obey the enemy rather than obey God, they give him their dominion, power, and authority. And this is where I said the subjects become the rulers and the rulers become the subjects. All of a sudden, they switched places. There was a power transfer. All the power and authority they had to rule the earth was handed over to the enemy. He became the ruler. We became the subjects. Just in in that exact moment. And here, Jesus is doing something because he's, he's here in this place. It is the beginning of him reclaiming dominion that was lost. When the scripture says that he came to seek and to save that which was lost, is he talking about, a.k.a. the lost, as in lost people? No. I believe he's talking about dominion, power, and authority. Does that make sense? Now, let me tell you something. You and I don't realize how much power and authority we actually have. We don't understand how much power and authority we have. Let me, let me, let me illustrate this. This is what I do with uh, guys in, you know, in like in Iran and in Afghanistan and the underground. Afghanistan, they don't understand it so much because they don't have bank cards. This is my bank card. I picked this one because it has no numbers on it. And I don't want anybody from watching on the internet to grab the numbers. But this is my bank card. If I gave you this and told you to go buy stuff, how much is on there? You don't know. You have no idea, right? I've just given you the card. God, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me and I am in you. Now go do this. But he doesn't tell us how much we have. And we're sitting there going, but how much do I have? How much do I have? Now, in order to find out what is on here, what have you got to do? Use it. Use it. Until you use it, you don't know what you have. You have way more power and authority than you realize and we're many times stopping and saying, Lord, when are you going to give me power and authority? He's already given it to you. What we're missing, now there's a sticker that comes on this. This is, this is authority. This is power. 
There's a sticker that comes on here when we get it in the mail. And what does it say? What do you have to do? Activate. Until you activate, you don't get anything. Activation is what releases the power to the authority. It's what releases the funds. It's what releases your ability to spend. Until you activate, you know, and if you don't, now we're, we can all get this card, have that sticker on there, and go, I got, Robbie gave me his card. What good is that? It does, you, it does no good until you start using it, until you activate it. And this is key for us to see the power of authority. We will not understand what we have until we begin to use it. Does that make sense? So people are like, how do I know if God's called me to do healing? Because the Bible says heal the sick. How do I know? Every, every believer on the planet should know how to cast out a demon. Every believer on the planet should know how to give a, word of, uh, a prophetic word. Every believer on the planet should know how to do healing. We should, every single one of us, because we're all called to do that. If you're stopping going, well, I can't wait to call my pastor because I know somebody who needs healing. You have missed the point. That answer is not in your pastor. It is in you, my dear. Activate it. All right. A couple of, word, a couple of amens on that one. This is important for us. This is important. And we're like, well, I don't know if I have the authority to cast out demons. You know how you find out? Start trying to cast them out. You're going to run up with some hard ones? You're going to run up with some challenging ones? So what? It's a great place to learn. Don't sit there and go, well, what if I get in over my head? Trust me, you'll get in over your head. That's good. Getting in over your head is where you learn. My job is to put you in over your head. That's my job. <laughs> so all of a sudden, he's reclaiming dominion, power, authority. Stepping out and praying for the sick. Stepping out and giving words. That this is us reclaiming dominion that was stripped away from us. Jesus didn't need it restored to him. He already had it. He was trying to restore it for us. Remember, everything he came to do was to show us what, who we are. Not to show his power, his authority, but to show our power, our authority. That's why he came as the second Adam. Satan is trying to get him to take, to take uh, the food, you know, with Adam and Eve. I mean, notice here, again, they're in this lush garden. They have this incredible thing. They don't have, they, there's no fasting. Adam and Eve don't have to do any fasting. They're in the presence of God all the time. They're not having to have a breakthrough. Their life is breakthrough. You know what I mean? There's nothing to break through. There's no hindrance. There's no opposition. But in him trying to get them to take food that they weren't supposed to take. Now Jesus, notice everything that's happening here is Jesus is on the flip side of that. He's in a place of barrenness. Now the garden has no, has nothing there. Now there's nothing. It's barren. It's bare. There's no fruit. There's, no, there's nothing to eat. You know, he, he obviously had some water, you know, in a stream or something to drink from. But man, he's in a difficult place. In this place. And he's putting his body under subjection. And in doing that, he's taking dominion over the earth. Why? Where do the bodies come from? The earth. And so he's taking dominion over his own body. He's taking back dominion that had been stripped away and stolen. That's what he's doing in that moment. And notice at the, at, at, you know, at, at trial, how many, you know, times, like, how many times in here does Satan come and said, if you are the son of God? How many times does he say it? Three times. If you are the son of God. If you are the son of God. Jesus' answer is always the same each time. It is written. The word says. Why? What is that? What is he doing? He's flashing his credentials. Why? Because who is he? The word of God. He's sitting here saying, I am the word. This is who I am. He's flashing his credentials by doing that. And we see how many times did, P did Peter deny Jesus before the cross? Three times. There's something in that connection of those. And how many times, again, here is Satan trying to tempt him. And he's trying to tempt him away from what is the word, if you are. What is that a challenge of? The word, the identity. Satan is always trying to challenge you and your, yours and my identity. Whenever he's challenging the word we received, he's challenging our identity. Does that make sense? And so Jesus is in this barren place. What is happening in this place when he's in the wilderness? 
The tree of life is back in the garden. Why? Who is the tree of life? Christ. The tree of life. But now, because of sin, because of rejecting God and rejecting God's presence, rejecting God's provision, it's barrenness. That's the result of being out from under the presence. It's barrenness, desolation, lack. There's not provision and blessing and covering. There's lack. In Luke 4, 13, it says, And when the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him for the next opportunity, waiting for the next opportunity to come. Satan doesn't ever quit. He's always looking for that next time. Then Jesus returned from Galilee. Now notice, how did he go into the wilderness? Full of the Holy Spirit. How does he come out? Full of the Holy Spirit, but there's something added. And power. Why? Because in the place of opposition is where God fortifies you. In the place of opposition, power comes from that pushback. This is a time that I refer to as the kiln of God. This is where the fire strikes the clay, solidifies it, makes it useful, makes it effect. Don't avoid the fire. If we avoid the fire, we're avoiding the work of God. But in the fire, look for Christ. What is Christ doing in the fire? What is he doing in this situation? What is he doing in me in this situation? In the midst of the fire, look for Christ. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Imagine had they rebuked the flames of the fire, the king would have never had a revelation of Christ. In the fire, Christ is revealed. Don't avoid the fire. Just look for Jesus when you're in it. Just look for Jesus and look for what he's doing. And can you imagine, man, all of a sudden, you know, uh, you know, being in this place, being in this situation, and Satan's temptation, it says, but when he's finished, all of a sudden, you know, he go, the whole, Holy Spirit, he's filled with Holy Spirit and power, and that's just the launch of his ministry. Again, don't, don't be discouraged when after you get a great word and, and all hell breaks loose. That's the kiln time. That's the striking of the fire time. Now, then let's jump ahead to look for that next time that Satan is talking about. Where he says he's looking for the next opportunity to come after Jesus. And we see that in Matthew 27, 39 through 40. And we're going to jump back and forth from the various scriptures of this particular passage. In verse 39, the people, this is him on, on the way to the cross. Jesus going to the cross. This is the next opportune, opportune time that we see Satan coming back with that same challenge of identity message. The people passing by shouted, shaking in mockery, look at you now. Now can you imagine they saw him as the healer. They saw him as the restorer. They saw him multiplying food. They saw him walking on water. And now they're saying, look at you now. Notice this isn't really the voice of people. This is the voice of the enemy. So many times when the people are slandering you, talking bad about you, saying all these things, it's, it's, we, we stop and we think it's them and it's originating from them, but always remember who your adversary is. Always remember who your adversary is. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you are the son of God, here it is. This is the challenge. Again, the challenge of identity. If you are the son of God, save yourself and come down from that cross. Now see, this is again the, tempt, the temptation of the enemy is to get us to circumvent the will of God. And if Jesus would have done that, it would have totally destroyed the plan and the purpose that God had. And it's just, it, it, I, can, I can only imagine. Imagine with me, if you will. Just imagine Scripture doesn't say this happened, but imagine, if you will, all of a sudden, what the picture would have looked like in heaven at the, at the scene of the crucifixion. And I can imagine angels bending over the balcony of heaven, looking down and seeing Jesus hanging on the cross. I imagine rage mounting up inside of them and them looking at the father on the throne and saying how dare they how dare they treat the lord of heaven and earth creator of them how dare they spit on him tear his beard out mock him cause him to bleed father release the word let us draw our swords and go down and destroy this ungrateful race that does not honor the king of heaven 
they don't deserve to live. Let us go down and wipe them out. And I imagine the father saying, stay your swords. Because this is how I make all things new. This is how I turn it around. What you are seeing is the battle of all times taking place in this moment. It doesn't look like a war. It looks like murder. It looks like death. It looks like destruction. But it's how he makes all. You have to realize the kingdom of God is upside down. The kingdom of God doesn't work as we work. And the father is saying, watch what unfolds next. You're not seeing the whole picture. You're going through the fire right now. I'm going through the fire. But guess what? We don't know the end picture. Stay with his plan. Stay with what he's saying. Stay with what he's communicating to you to do. I'm always saying, Lord, you can reroute me at any second. Tell me to turn on a dial. I'll do it in a heartbeat. You tell me anything. I don't care how bad, how difficult, how hard it is. I will do it. And this is such a powerful thing because right here, what we're seeing is the green tree and the dry tree, the dead tree, together again. Because why? Because all of a sudden, you know, it, it says, you know, when Jesus is on his way and the women are crying for him. And he stops and he says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. If this is what's happening in the green tree, then how much worse is it for the dry? What's the sign of a tree being full of life? Cut away the bark and you see green. That's his communication of life. What is he revealing? I'm the tree of life. And so here again, we see finally the two trees in the cross back in the garden again. You see the tree of life covering the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because the tree of knowledge of good and evil is death, the penalty of death, the penalty that leads to death. The law leads to death. But here, Jesus is covering it. And we see the tree of, of life covering the tree of knowledge. We see grace covering and completing the law. Something we could never do. Does that make sense? Look at Luke 23, 37 through 43. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Man, these taunts don't stop. Through the whole time, the most vulnerable time and all of his life that Jesus is, is right here in this moment. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And a sign was fastened over him with these words. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed and said, So you're the Messiah, are you? Now this is a person that Jesus is coming to save. The ones who are in the worst place, the ones who need it the most. This is, that, this is that guy. The one who needs salvation is scoffing at him. And he says, so you're the Messiah, are you? What are the next words? Prove it. What was the message of the law? Prove by how you live. Prove it. It was a proving that had to happen. A proving. Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. This thief has no realization that Jesus is actually there to save him. He's saving him as, as he's speaking. And I love this. But the other criminal protested. And this is probably in my book one of the most powerful messages of salvation and of the gospel right here. I love this story so, 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 so much. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God? Even now, when you have been sentenced to die? Don't you fear God? He goes, we deserve to die for our crimes. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. How would he know that? Just by what he heard? My friends, that only comes by revelation. This thief is getting a revelation. 
of who Christ is. At his worst place, at the most painful place of his life, at the place of his death, where, he's, where his days are coming to the end. He says, we deserve to grieve, but this one, he's done nothing wrong. Now, these are criminals that, again, they deserve death. Their punishment is death, and they deserve every bit of it. Now, listen to what he says. I love this. We deserve to die. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? I love this so much. I love this so much because this thief is basically saying, listen, I know who I am. I know what I've done, and I don't deserve what you're doing. But it would give me just a little consolation to know that I was a thought on your mind somewhere as you enter into your kingdom. It would just give me consolation. I know what I'm about to go through and where I'll end up is what I deserve. But would you just do me the favor and would you just remember? Just remember me. Just let me be that thought. I know I have no hope to go. Now let me tell you something. Nowhere in scripture before the cross do we ever, ever, ever see any human being entering into heaven. Go through the whole Old Testament and just research it out. It's not there. We see Elijah being taken up into the heavenlies, but we know that that's not talking about into heaven. And so there was no human being that enters into heaven until Christ died on the cross and made a way for them to do that. And I love this because Jesus turns and answers and Jesus replied, I assure you today, not only will I remember you, but today I'm taking you with me. Today, you will be with me. You will be with me in paradise. And I believe he says paradise because this man had no hope into going into heaven. And paradise was the place that you went to that was not heaven. It was other, otherwise called Abraham's bosom. It was a whole, it's where the Catholic Church really gets the whole concept of purgatory. It's a middle place between hell and between heaven that you would go. It's done away with because it's not necessary anymore. It's only heaven and hell now, and it would not be a necessary. So he says paradise because this man would have no concept of even being allowed to go into heaven. The first fruit of the cross is a thief worthy of death. The first fruit of the cross is the worst guy around. And Jesus picks him. And he says, today you will be with me. You think you can earn or deserve? You think you can prove? This is the acceptance of relationship. This is Jesus saying, I'm, I've come back with relationship. I've come back to turn it around. I mean, guys, this is good news. This is such good news. I, I, you will be with me. Now, Jesus is on the cross, and what is he wearing? What is he wearing on the cross? Nothing. All these depictions that we have of him having a loincloth was not there. He had nothing. How was Adam and Eve in the garden? Naked. They had nothing. And so here he is, hanging on the cross. Here he is, again, as the second Adam, back in the garden, back in a place, but of barrenness, not of provision, not of, because why? He's the tree of life coming to cover the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now look, Mark 15, 33 through 34. You guys okay? Am I boring you? Is this helpful? Five of you, good. I got five of you in my corner right now. Mark 15, 33, it says, at noon darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Let me tell you something. Jesus never called his father God. He always called him father. God is too distant of a term until he became as we are. Until he took on sin and took on distance. He never called him God until right here. My God, my God. And this call that you're hearing right here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is 
Adam responding in the garden to thousands of years before where God is searching saying, Adam, Adam, where are you? He doesn't reply for thousands of years later where Jesus on the cross as the second Adam shouts out, my God, my God, I'm distant from your presence. And let me tell you something. The agony of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane was not over the torture and the brutality that he would go through in the cross. That's not what he was weeping over. That's not what he was sweating, you know, like great drops of blood over. It wasn't the torture. It wasn't the pain. It wasn't the suffering. It was the separation. He was agonizing, being separated from a presence he had never known separation from. He was agonizing, becoming like us without the presence. Think about that. He was agonizing that place of separation and relationship because he had never known what it was like to be without it. He had to become as we were in order to bring us to the place where he is. Now listen, John 19, 28. This is the last scripture, I promise. You guys all right? Remember the clock falls back. I was saying that intentionally to get you to ease up a little bit on the time thing, okay? John 19, 28 through 30, it says, Jesus then knew that his mission was finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said the words, I thirst. Jesus had never said that before. We see him asking for a drink from the woman at the well. We see him taking a drink. We see him drinking. But he never said the words, I thirst, until this moment, because here the green tree had become dry. Here the green tree had known separation. This is how we knew he was in the place where he became as us. This is the scripture where we know he became sin. At that Eloi, Eloi, lama sabbathani, and when he says the words, I thirst. I now know lack. I now know what it is like to be without. He says, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine was sitting there nearby. They soaked a sponge and they put it on the hyssop branch and they held it up to his lips. And Jesus, when he had tasted it, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the spirit. He gave up his spirit. This is such a beautiful action because we see something here. This is what, when Jesus became sin in that place of saying, I thirst. You have to realize what's going on. Now, Golgotha would have been a place where many people had died. This would have been a hill where many people, they called it the place of the skull. This would have been a place where many people had died. And you could imagine the broken bones of humanity scattered around on the floor. You could imagine bones of dead people that would be there possibly. We don't know for sure, but you could imagine that. Because many people had died in Golgotha. And some people refer to it as the trap heat, tra trash heap, but I think it was more of the human trash dump. It was where all the ones who deserve death go. And yet here, Jesus, doing the greatest, most redemptive work, is at the lowest place humanity met their end, if you think about that. And this is so powerful because Jesus is, what, what else is he other than the second Adam? He's the last high priest. He's the last high priest and here, Jesus, this is so powerful. Remember the atonement? Jesus is there hanging on the cross, and what is his hands filled with? Blood. The blood of what? A pure, spotless lamb. No longer being poured out on a vessel of pure gold on the lid of that ark in the mercy seat but now dropping on the brokenness of humanity, transforming our brokenness into pure gold. The final work of atonement, the final place of making all things new. And his blood dropping, being poured out. It's such a powerful picture 
transforming all of us. Now, I can imagine at this moment, when he dies and he gives up the spirit, what happens next? I love this. I can imagine the father. <laughs> Again, I can't prove it. You can't disprove it. I got the mic. I can say what I think. You got to figure out if I'm right or not. But I can imagine the father jumping up from the throne and shouting out, tear that veil. I want every bit of separation removed that would separate my presence from my people. Tear that veil. I think he hated that veil. I think he despised that veil because it meant blocking his presence. And let me tell you something. That veil wasn't there. It was not there. as a, It was there to save us from the finality of his presence wiping out. If it was to wipe out our sin, would wipe us out completely and totally. And then all of a sudden, the veil tears. Why? Because how do we know that how it tears from the top down? And God tears that veil. And I imagine he's like, get rid of that. I hate that thing. I want, every, I want every opposition, everything blocking my presence from my people removed. Let it be unleashed. I don't want it contained any longer. Destroy that veil. Again, I can't prove it. You can't disprove it. I got the mic. And then I love it because all of a sudden, this is so powerful because Jesus' flesh is being torn. His flesh is being torn at the point of crucifixion, at the point of the torture and everything that he's going through. It's tearing his flesh. This thing, again, that, that was created, we were shaped and formed by the hand of God himself. You know, man was Adam, you know, in the garden. And then all of a sudden, I can, I can just imagine at the point of that being torn, at the point of that separation, it was releasing the presence finally to come out and to pursue humanity that had been separated from it. I love this so much. Because here at the place where the disciples are thinking this is the worst possible Position to ever be in. This is the worst possible thing to ever have happen. It was actually the greatest victory that ever lived, that ever took a place, that had ever transpired. And then, three days later, he's back. Now you could sort of imagine at the triumphal entry at Palm Sunday. The disciples are all excited because people were waving prompters, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna and the highest. I, you can imagine them going, this is amazing. This is now when the kingdom is going to get set up. This is Jesus is going to restore Jerusalem. They're like, you know, Lord, we need to make pamphlets. You know, we need to, we need to get you elected as the president. You know, we need to get you in office so you can rule. And they're like, this is incredible. They're sitting there handing out cabinet positions. I'm going to be the vice president. I'm going to be the secretary of state. You know, I'm going to, you know, you could just imagine them going down that road. And then all of a sudden, just, you know, a week later, he's dying. He's bleeding out. And they're like, it's hopeless. It's over. And on the road to Emmaus, this is something really significant. As he's going on the road to Emmaus, all of a sudden... They are walking with him and they do not recognize him. Keep that in mind. They do not recognize him as they're on the road to Emmaus. And then all of a sudden they're like, well, it, they're, they're like, he's like, why are you so down? Why are you crying? What's going on? And he goes, well, this guy, Jesus, who died, you know, this happened. And he goes, we, we thought he was the Messiah or at least a prophet. They had already dwindled him down to maybe being a prophet because of the, what had happened in all this horrific scene that they had witnessed. And then now, all of a sudden, they get word, he's back. Can you imagine? They're like, dust off the pamphlets. Your guy has social reform that you're trying to get elected. Our guy can raise himself from the dead. Beat that. <laughs> and this election is ours, you know? And I love this so much because all of a sudden, Jesus, when he's raised from the dead, how is he first seen? When the women came, what do they where do they find him? Gardening! Here he is, the tree of life, back in the garden. The second Adam, back tending the garden. I mean, it's just such a beautiful picture. And he's just sitting there. They're like, oh, you must be the gardener. 
And he's like, you have no idea. <laughs> You're not catching what's happening right here, right now. <laughs> and so he's back in. He's second Adam, the, the last high priest. He's restoring that which is lost amongst all these tombs, many of which were now open. Because at the point of his death, they were raised from the dead. And when he raised from the dead, many were raised from the dead. <laughs> so powerful. And so here he is in the garden, and he's like, why do you seek the living among the dead? What are you doing? And I love it. They go to the tomb, and what do they find sitting on the tomb? An angel. Remember what was guarding the tree of life? An angel with a big sword saying, stay away or you'll be slaughtered. Now there's no sword. There's just an angel sitting on the tomb saying, go tell everyone. Come. There is no restriction. The sword is gone. New life has begun. Come and get it. Go tell everyone. How powerful is that? Oh, my goodness. And I love it that the wounds didn't disappear from his body. He's still in this body with torn flesh and torn, yet he's fully alive, fully restored. Oh, my friends, this is the work Christ has done for us. And to bring people into the presence that they can never get to on their own. It's such a beautiful picture, such a powerful thing of what he has done and what he has released into us. This is why we have to share with everyone. Would you stand?